Live in Mission, Texas. Hi, Bill. It's Anna. Good morning to you. And we've got a major update to a cartel related story we first brought to our viewers last week. Let's get right into these photos again, which we showed last week, showing several armed cartel gunmen crossing illegally here into the Rio Grande Valley in the Fronton, Texas area. Texas DPS now confirms to Fox News two of those gunmen have been arrested after crossing illegally in the exact same area again while armed with guns again. Let's and you are not talking about a uh Cartel. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think that the word cartel, that the, the, the concept is wrong. Yeah, what's well, old? Yeah. It's old, yeah. exactly. It's old, exactly. Because you were talking about Pablo Bolivia, Escobar, yeah. uh, uh, yes, uh, Bolivia, Pablo Escobar, and, 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 and Colombia. But now, you know, the way that media represents these groups, it's like there's a cartel, there's a corporation, there's a company. That's not true. We are talking about systems and the, the complex adaptive system. They became yeah. like, like these this small cells that adapt yeah, and to, autonomous. Yeah. yeah, autonomous, and not all of them are trafficking drugs. Some of them are just kidnapping. Some of them are participating in human smuggling, and they manage the, because of the capacity, they have arms, they, they control the territory. So you, if you want to bring, I mean, with smugglers, with human smugglers, you want to bring your people through here, you have to pay me per person. This, this this money and I will give you a code. That's exactly what they do. Mm. Some of these some of these uh, groups that they are complex up systems and so you see how they now behave in um, in Tabaulipas, in Zacatecas, in um, and they were set of zones. They mm. have always been set of zones in Veracruz, in Tabasco. I mean, all these groups are dominating uh, illicit activities and they are part of illicit networks. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars podcast. We are the number one podcast of the Americas, the only bilingual podcast that takes you beyond the border. I say we're the number one podcast not because of me, because of our guest, and we have a beautiful guest here today. I called her a Mayan princess, and I had it totally wrong because she has a very lovely dress on. But uh, she corrected me real quick, and she said, you know, she's from Mexico. Guadalupe Correa is with us today. And she said, that's from India, by the way. So I was a little bit off on my geography. Uh, Guadalupe, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here. And we're excited to have you. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast because if there's one podcast that you have to do Guadalupe, it's Border Wars, because your work has been about the border for, well, I've known you fairly recently, but I've looked at your CV, very impressive. And I looked at all the books and publications and research that you've done. And I, think I venture to say you may be one of the foremost experts on the border with Mexico. I guess, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I, I lived at the border for eight years, but I've been writing and, you know, I go there all the time and- you know, I'm going to be publishing a book. I, mean, I co-author the book with a friend of mine, okay, um, a journalist, and we have traveled all along the border. Wow. The first time, 2013, the whole border, wow. the whole Mexico's border. Yeah. So I, but the U.S.-Mexico border. The U.S.-Mexico border, from both sides of the border. We are uh, describing each border municipality on the Mexican side, of course, and each border county, everything wow. about the border. And that was in 2013? No, 2013, 2019. 2021 okay. and in at different, uh, at different points because 
I live in Brownsville, Texas. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with Brownsville. It's, very, very, it's a nice area. Very nice. It's getting not as nice as the time goes on. It's a little bit getting a little out of my experience there, but we'll talk about that another day. There's a podcast about that, by the way. But let's go to the beginning because uh, I want the audience to get to know you. Uh, you're obviously a very prolific academic. You've written, uh, you teach, uh, you're at George Mason University. I think it's the, you're professor at the School of Policy and Government at George Mason. Is that correct? Uh-huh. And, um, but take us back. So you're from Mexico originally? I was born and raised in Mexico and I studied economics in Mexico City okay. at the Universidad de Americana. So oh, nice. I was an economist. Oh, very Mexico. nice. Very nice. And were you born in Mexico City? I was born near Mexico City in the state of Mexico, very oh. near Mexico City. But, you know, usually I was, I was raised in, in Mexico City okay. where my family lives. When did you come to the U.S.? I started, um, I, I started my, I studied my PhD in 2000. Okay. Okay. In New York City. Oh wow. Okay. So you went from Mexico City to New York. Exactly. So like just bad traffic all around. Exactly. Yeah. That's correct. Bad yeah. traffic. <laughs> no, I mean Mexico City's serious. I mean I, I once had walked faster ten blocks than I could drive. So yeah. I have fond memories of Mexico City. Um so in in Mexico back then, um what was your big takeaway when you moved to the United States? What was the big memory that you had of Mexico back then? And obviously you go back now as a professional, as a researcher, but what's what was what was, what existed then that you see changed now? I'm sure a lot of things, but a lot of things. But mm, it was. I mean, when I was born, we were during. I mean, we were living the PRI era, which we had a uh, party in power for more than seventy years, yeah. and you know, politics started to change in the 1990s. Mm. Well, late 80s during the 1990s was a democratic transition a transition to democracy, but at the same time, the promises of the economic policies that were changing uh, because of the end of import substitution industrialization. I became an economist when the model changed. When ISI, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was the end of it. The promises of globalization, the so-called neoliberal policies that are not very neoliberal, not yeah. neoliberal, but anyway, that's how... They are framed, the Washington Consensus and the PESA crisis of 1994. After that, yeah, all that. So that that time of recurrent economic crisis of the merger. Is that what made you study economics? Yeah, I mean, everybody studied economics at this time, a lot of people. So that was kind of like a a profession. That's true, because with the Washington Consensus, people were like, oh, this is a career track. We're all going to move into becoming macroeconomists and stuff like that. That makes sense. Exactly. Um, I want to ask you, I'm going to diverge a little bit because I want to ask you, you said something, um, this was the era of what some people call hyper-globalization, right? Yep. 1989 through mm-hmm. 2009, arguably. Yeah. Do you what? feel like we're at the end of that? Do you feel like, you know, there's this question that I've been asked a lot of times, uh, the end of globalization, right? So become a, I think the New York Times wrote an article about this recently. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do you, since you lived and you kind of, you know, you, you broke your exactly. professional bread during this period, how do you feel about globalization? Yes, that was a that was it. That was the end of the Cold War. Let's let's say that right mm-hmm. when the United States was the hegemonic power, there was no question. Uh, the, the winner yeah. of the of the Cold War, the United States, and everything had to do to do with a model that was created in Washington. There was a consensus, the double transition towards democracy and capitalism. I mean, that was that was the end of history, according yeah. Francis Fukuyama. And you know, some Huntington. This is, was a this was a a time of the end of history. That was it. The United States ruling the world, and 
um, initiating and deciding about all the pro- all the projects and, and globalization the way that we conceive it. And at this point, we have a multipolar world. Yeah. In you know the, the today, arrival of today. China, exactly yeah. that is the difference mm-hmm. that we have poles of power. We have Russia. We have China. I'm not sure how much Russia, but still, still is in the conversation. It's there, yeah, yeah. And you know, they they have some control, arms, nuclear weapons, yeah. and yeah, uh, yeah. they're invading so, countries. Exactly, so, yeah. that is correct. Yeah. That is correct. So we have we have three poles of power: Eurasia, mm. Asia, and the Western world. Mm. I would say, right, mm. the Eastern world versus the Western world. Wow. I would say, uh, in in many ways, if we can just describe the two poles of, mm-hmm. of power, I would say China and Europe right. and the United States, yeah, yeah. right? So, I mean, Russia and China versus Europe and the United States. And at that time of the 1990s, when the Washington consensus was something that we needed to understand because we needed to abide by mm-hmm. I'm from Mexico. Mm-hmm. It was Latin America. Yeah, NAFTA. NAFTA. Yeah. After absolutely NAFTA, but but after the the oil crisis and the debt crisis, so a new beginning. Mm. The promises of this double transition, the end of the import substitution industrialization mm. model, and the beginning of globalization. Is this over? This is over as we conceived it, but the processes and the technology has taken us to a an era where there is also a lot of dependency, but the sure. supply chains that were built during the 1990s um, are over. Mm. So this is the reorganization of the supply chains. Yeah. And the United States after... You're talking about nearshoring? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So this is a big transformation. We're living it in a new world order. Yeah. That also, that's also led by players that were similar. They have more power. But those players that are right now have their headquarters in China mm-hmm. and are Chinese mm-hmm. uh, themselves. Uh, of course, they have become so powerful, so rich because of the order that initiated them in the 1990s, right? The investments in, in this region with a lot of people that could provide work in a very cheap manner. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, you could say they were, you know, China was one of the winners of the globalization process, right? Because they integrated what was once a very closed society, kind of a insular uh, economic model uh, to opening up their economy. There's a lot of debate as to why they did that, if it was actually a means to an end or if it was in in, in and of itself. Um, I agree. I agree. I think I, I had to give a presentation recently about the end of globalization. Um, you know, and I also studied economics, you know, we, you know, you know from uh, George Mason, actually. <laughs> so, um, you know, a very free market approach, uh, you know, and, you know, we're not, free trade is, is good. It's voluntary. It's mutually beneficial. But, you know, the world doesn't really operate in uh, a theory that's, you know, a more uh, directly understood in a textbook. It's, you know, a lot of nuance and a lot of granularity to it. So what I've seen is, uh, what I've described more is like a, a process of creative destruction of globalization, like it's transforming. And, and I think you hit it on the nail on the head with the supply chains. Because, um, you know, if you look at the, what they call the structure of production, you know, the economics, right. you know, the, the, the raw materials are still going to stay, the raw materials are still going to be in the same places where they usually exactly. are. Uh, the consumer goods are still going to be in consumer markets, which are the biggest ones. Usually it's Asia, Europe, uh, North America are the biggest consumer markets in the world. Yeah. I don't think that's going to change uh, anytime soon. 
but the intermediate goods, the supply chains, all the stuff like the steel that you need, uh, the, the, the wheat that you need for agriculture, all the fertilizers, all the stuff that you need to produce those end consumer goods that you drive from raw materials, that's all changing. And, and that's becoming closer to shores. Yeah. But uh, there's something else, mm-hmm. technology, the chips, the microprocessors, I mean, oh, yeah. all these, I mean, technology that it, that, that can be produced in the global south. Mm. They, they use this, you know, mm. this idea mm. of the global south and the global north mm. just to, to show us that, in a way, this is the end of globalization as we conceived it. But on the other hand, it's global in nature, mm. um, this process, right? Um, because it has to do with the forces in, in the world anyway. So you don't stop completely your uh, your communication because yeah. it's 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 interesting. We don't really know. Yeah, we're more connected now exactly. than, than ever before globally. Never, globally, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So on, on the one hand, we have. I mean, on the one hand, we have the. Um, I mean, we, we have the the disintegration of the the supply chains yeah. as we used to know them. But on the other hand, you know, you can contact any anybody in any part of the world yeah. through WhatsApp. Through, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, you're more connected than at any other moment. And that's, that's a good point. Global. You know, we're, we're, uh, perhaps less dependent on, uh, global supply chains, but we're more dependent on international communications that stream, you know, for any one corner of the world to the other corner of the world. Um, you know, what I've described is, you know, we, there's actually a book, I think, uh, I think it was Shannon O'Neill who wrote this in council World relations. Exactly. It, it was an interesting book. Cause you know what it, what I took away from it, I can't remember the title of it. Do you know? So it's about supply chains. It's it is. her latest book, it's but I don't book. remember the title. I, I don't either. Uh, we'll put it in the description, Shannon, so you guys can promote it. But what I do remember was the big winners of globalization, right? right. In North America, Europe, in Asia. And what the data was showing was that the, the winners of globalization were those that first integrated regionally before they engaged international markets. So North America... Uh, 40% of international trade of North America is within North America, U.S., Mexico, right, right. U.S., Canada. Uh, 60% of European international trade is within the European Union within Europe. Uh, and, and Asia was interesting because Asia started, I think, at 25%, give or take, in 1989 when this hyper era globalization began. And I think it's up where at 60, 65 plus percent now. So they really, and that's, you know, China as well, kind of broadening out. So I think what's coming now, and this is, I think, with Shannon's argument, and I, I see it in Latin America, and we're going to jump in down to talk about Mexico, is uh, regionalization, right? There's a regionalization effort to kind of bring markets closer to home. Bring, it's not like ISI, which was inward of a country. Yeah. This is more like within a neighborhood. Region, uh, a regional. Within a regional it's, neighborhood. It's a region. that, that, that shares uh, many things, shares culture, shares uh, um, demographics, shares uh, language. Um, in some cases shares race and ethnicity, but it has commonalities that even in markets are necessary to be able to translate consumer goods. Cause it's, you know, it, it wasn't easy for, you know, these big corporations, Nike, you know, Google, or Google isn't gone, but Nike or any of these other big corporations to go to Asia because they right. had to learn about uh, Asian customs and traditions and culture. I, I mentioned that because, you know, Mexico, right? So the big story with Mexico that we see in the United States is uh, beyond the border, beyond, we're going to talk about that in the cartels, is, you know, NAFTA. NAFTA was the big story during the era of globalization. Right. And then now we have the USMCA, which is kind of, I don't know how you view that, but if, okay. if it's like an extension of NAFTA or, or redoing NAFTA, but it's essentially this trade agreement uh, between the largest trade partners of the world. Where has Mexico fit into that? Because have they been the losing end of this uh 
trilateral agreement or, 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 or is it, you know, how do you see it? <laughs> I see it through the lenses of, uh, some people don't like it, but dependency theory. Yeah. We were, we were a, an important part of North America and we are still an important part of North America in a, in a different way. I mean, North America as a regional a trade agreement, trade agreement only, not going towards what is the European Union. We have, we have people. And that's where we, we need to talk about India, for example. Mm-hmm. India, how has India become a world power too mm-hmm. because of its excess of population? population. Yeah. And that's very important. So what is the role that Mexico plays here? And that was kind of like the, um, the decision to build these maquiladoras. And mm-hmm. this is very important. And this is connected with the violence and yeah. the water and all these dynamics yeah, yeah, that course. I have been studying, right? So you have people and you take people to the border, the, the big companies are going to the Mexican side of the border and have less regulations and can pay uh, lower salaries. So it's a, supposedly a win-win situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mexicans don't have to go to the United States or don't have to cross illegally. They will have jobs and that would stop supposedly uh, undocumented immigration. Yeah, those are the maquilladores, right? The, 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 yeah, the maquilladores and that's what, that's manufacturing. Manufacturing companies yeah. that, uh, that are located on the Mexican side and they have benefits in many ways, right? Are they all, all along the border or are they mainly in the Eastern side of the border? It, they, in, there was a plan to do this all, all along the border, right? But there are poles of development. Yeah. And for example, in the central border in, in Ciudad Juarez, it's where probably the, the, the majority of the, of the maquiladoras are located at. There's some in Reynosa, there's some in Matamoros, there are some in Tijuana, but mainly uh, in the in the biggest uh, industrial cities mm. at the border. This is where they are at. And the maquiladoras were a core or a central part of the Mexican role within NAFTA. That was mm. a promise yeah. of development after the import substitution industrialization model finished. And... The, the, I mean, many Mexicans went to the United States because they started to lose their jobs because the the agricultural sector they they stopped subsidizing yeah. uh, a lot of products, agricultural products. So, and a lot of Mexican companies because it was the end of import substitution industrialization. So, in NAFTA, many people were unemployed, started to go to the United States, but a new world order mm. started to. And Mexico was involved in NAFTA and, and they, they were workers for, yeah. for this new project, right? And NAFTA changed a lot of logics of, of the, I mean, of the hemispheric uh, conversation. And at that exact time, 1994, when a lot of, um, you know, uh, decisions at the, uh, in politics were also taken, and the generation of, of new democratic institutions. So this double transition at the same time, right? And, and this is something that happened in many other countries in the world. For on the one hand, this 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 the end of history, Latin America, Eastern Europe, going with the same um, mentality than than the United States, the dominating power. But Mexico was going supposedly with a bigger bigger market, mm-hmm. a smaller state, was going to move into a, into a, a better world. Mm-hmm. We're going to develop and grow, and that was a promise. And what happened? 
<laughs> well, you could see 350,000 people that have been killed in yeah. the so-called yeah. drug wars, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. levels of, of growth that... But what went wrong? Because obviously something went wrong here because the maquilladoras, uh, you know, it, I, I know the story of what you're describing, but it's actually now no more as an uh, in, in area of illicit activity, you know? Um, and, and there's all kinds of stories of human trafficking uh, from the trabajadores de los maquilladores que have to cross the border and things like that. So, so how would you describe it? And, and we could get into your specific trips to the border because I'm sure you visited all these parts. Mm -hmm, right. But what went wrong in your in your view? Well, I mean, this project benefited a lot of um, Mexican, not a lot, but important Mexican companies that were, you know, part of that new, new type of development. Of course, products were sold in the United States. There were some manufacturing companies, Mexican of Mexican origin, that did well. Mm -hmm. Um, but in this, in this, in this model, many people also went to the United States and some of them stayed and work in the maquiladoras and some of them lost their jobs, less entrepreneurs. So you have an increase in the levels of inequality yeah. and poverty too during that time. But some did well, some did bad, but there was a, there was an increase in, in inequality. At the same time, there was like uh, more opportunities, there were more opportunities to, um, you know, to traffic drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and the markets of drugs started to diversify. During the PRI time, the PRI kind of managed drug routes and the drug trade itself. Mm -hmm. At the same time that... The PRI, uh, the political party or the presidents that were belong the, to PRI? It, it's a model, it's a political model, uh, the one-party state regime. Uh, but the the party the party is the important figure here. Of course, yeah. the president was yeah. a central um, figure. Would you say this is began maybe during the Guadalajara cartel? Does it go before that? Because the PRI was in power for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean it's the Guadalajara cartel, and it 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 coincided, of course, with the closing of the drug routes that were going through through the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And so that deviation of the drugs from Colombia, particularly cocaine, mm -hmm. coming from Col Colombia, of course, and then being transported through Mexico yeah. when the Mexicans started the balloon to become. Effect, yeah. Exactly. And that all coincided with, with, on the one hand, the enforcement that deviated the routes towards Mexico and possibilities. The... Uh, the, I mean, NAFTA, for example, the, the building of, of different types of infrastructure yeah, to allow, exactly, yeah. absolutely. Like, for example, the, the, the bridges in, in Nuevo Laredo, right? Mm -hmm. The, the World Trade Bridge, mm -hmm. for example, that's, uh, in Nuevo Laredo is the, the place at the border that more cars cross. Mm -hmm. I mean, that in the two directions. And it was a part of NAFTA. So where, where the drugs are transported through, the main yeah. Um, highways, yeah, highways exactly. So you have you have, I mean, you have uh, illicit goods going back and forth, and also illicit goods going back and forth. And I'm talking about also uh, the transportation or the, the the smuggling of not only drugs but also people, mm -hmm. arms. You had you have more possibilities, more mobility, more transportation of goods. And inside the 18-wheelers, yeah. you can transport illicit goods and also illicit goods. Yeah, yeah. So NAFTA was a time where, you know, the loss of control or manage of the, of the, of the, of the drug trade took place. And now yeah. you have more players, political yeah. players. You had a party, 
And the leader of the party was the president of Mexico, who made a lot of decisions, a very powerful man. This man lost power when uh, Fox arrived to power in the year 2000. Vicente Fox, right? Vicente Fox uh-huh. arrived to power in, in the year 2000. He was another party. Was he, the, he was the first Pan president, is, is that right? Exactly. He, he broke the pre-rule. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, no. It was the, it was the, the end of the, of the PRI regime. Yeah. We counted like that. There were like um, triumphs of, uh, uh, of politicians in, uh, of different parties in local elections, state mm-hmm. elections governors. Um, but then after, after Vicente Fox arrived to power, most of the, the governors were PRI governors, but, yeah. uh, but other uh, candidates from other parties started to win elections. So now the drug trade started to break its, its logic and groups started to fight for control of the drug areas. Mm-hmm. And so there was another logic and the so-called drug wars started yeah. uh, because the, the, the group started to, um, and to connect with different politicians at different parts of the routes. Okay. So that logic was broken. And this is where things started to become very complicated and the fights for the drug plazas, the fights for the drug um, spaces, I would say, started started in the, I mean, in the exactly. So let, let me recap a little bit. So, so you make sure our, our listeners, our viewers are kind of grabbing all this. Cause I think this is a good history. It's an important history. A lot of you that are concerned about what's happening in the U S Southern border. If you don't know this history, it looks like it's happened all in the last few years when it really hasn't. It's been, um, it's been a kind of an evolution of what goes on in Mexico, uh, what goes on in the United States, uh, our trade relationship that's exploited by illicit actors, because I mean, that's the thing about trade, right? Like it's not a, you know, it's not, it, it, whenever you build something, it doesn't necessarily mean that only good people are going to use it. it. It's whatever can use it. Well, use, the technology is the same way, right? You exactly. can have a cell phone that's good for uh, communication with your family. It's also good for uh, bad business uh, from illicit actors. So I guess in a summary, you know, NAFTA gets signed to build a lot of infrastructure, uh, particularly on the U.S.-Mexico border. And that infrastructure coincides with the time where the balloon effect happens between uh, cocaine trafficking that's moving. We used to be moving through the Caribbean into Puerto Rico, up into the United States. It gets shut Miami. down in Miami principally. It gets shut down or it gets at least uh, clamped down. And that uh, effect takes over to the land corridor through Mexico. Exactly. So the transportation, the infrastructure that's been developed because of NAFTA is now exploited by cartels because it's an easier uh, logistical maneuvering to get your products into the United States consumer markets. They started as uh, as employees of the Colombians, but then Mexicans <laughs> know their territory. Yeah. And so they started to produce and to not only to transport, not only to be employees and, and, and to uh, uh, work in collaboration, but they started to be like the Lord. Yeah. Of yeah. And then now the they're progress. down, they're down in the production countries, controlling production as well. The, the big cartels from Mexico. Exactly. So, okay. So this happens, this takes place. Um, you know, this is kind of like a, a second order effect of globalization. I mean, perhaps not what it was intended to do, but it's what happened. Exactly. Um, does maquilladores end up becoming overrun by cartels in other places that are starting to use it or? No, 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 no. The maquilladoras, and, and this is important. Uh, they are um, foreign companies mm-hmm. that are located in Mexico, very close well, or at the border yeah. on the Mexican side, so they pay less taxes, have less regulations, environmental regulations. But are they extorted by the cartels? Um, they have not been so affected by the cartels. That's a very important point. Mm. What has happened is that the 
I mean, when they were built, they generated a lot of uh, internal migration. So okay, people yeah. from, let's say, Veracruz, uh, Chiapas, the Oaxaca, south of Mexico, the south of Mexico, where people need work, went to the to the north. And so these cities, like like um, like uh, Ciudad Juarez, mm. which is like the biggest city of Maquiladoras, these, these cities started to to grow very fast, mm. but not with the social infrastructure that was needed to generate a space of stability. Mm. So a number of people coming from different parts of the country with the different needs, um, I mean, started to go there. And this is what explains like the dead women of Juarez, right? Yeah. A number of women went there and you see a lot of women that are alone, have kids, the kids have to be, I mean, in the street, there's there's no infrastructure to to deal with this. And, and of course, impunity and many things. It was a perfect storm mm. for for the groups that wanted to traffic drugs to the United States also um, had also the capacity. It, it, it also took time. Uh, I mean, it also took place at a time where the model started to change, okay. to transform. By the end of the 1990s, this model had changed with the creation of Los Edas. Mm. So these groups, not just dedicated to, to the drug trade, they started to find because they were connected with former military personnel, former special forces. Yeah, take a, take us describe the beginning of this because I don't know if everyone knows the beginning of the setas. Describe how the setas were formed. Yes, uh, the setas were formed uh, in the state of Tamaulipas, in the city where I I was. I, I mean, I was living in in Brownsville, in but Matamoros, in Matamoros, yeah. um, but there was a that was like the the heart of the of the Gulf Cartel, and the leader of the Gulf Cartel at that time. Uh, was was trying to protect the 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 main uh, the main centers of distribution of drugs along the border the Tamaulipas border, and at that time um, the Osiel Cárdenas who was the leader of the Gulf Cartel met Arturo Guzmán de Sena who was uh, one of the leaders one of the main set the 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 first set of people that were trained in. I mean, they were special forces of the Mexican army. They were trained in counterinsurgency mm. operations at, in the south of Mexico to deal with what appeared in 1994, the Zapatista, Zapatista movement system. in Chiapas. So they were they were trained for that because this movement seemed to be a a bigger movement, a social movement, an insurgency. But they, it ended not to be that way. It ended. Uh, in, in, in itself, uh, like, you know, talking about autonomies, it was more an indigenous movement in the end. Mm. But it started to be a class movement. It started to be an insurgency and they were trained. Um, we don't know where they were trained. Some people allege that they were trained in the United States because many of the uh, special forces of the armies in US, our region yeah. are trained in the United States. But we don't have that certainty. At mm. least I don't. But many people like take it for granted, but okay. that, that, that information is not available or at least I haven't seen it. Um, but, but the, but the thing is that they were trained, they were trained, they, their job finished and they went to the border, uh, as part of the judicial police, many of them, the federal police or dealing with, con uh, anti-narcotics operations in collaboration mm -hmm. with the United States. There was a time when the United States, uh, was, was very, um, was was certifying other countries that happened yeah. at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And at that time, uh, some people decided to work for the 
for the anti-narcotics police, oh. federal police, and they were part of the enforcement authorities, anti-narcotics enforcement authorities, and the narcotics and how authorities. And how did they transform into the, a cartel, you know, being involved in the drug, not enforcement, but on the distribution? They had special capacities, and they started to become part of a, like a Praetorian Guard of Ocil Cadenas Guillén that was in fight against different groups that wanted to fight, uh, wanted to control that very important strategic frontier mm -hmm. uh, for the drug trade. So at that frontier, you had maquiladoras and you had drugs moving along this very special uh, shape of the Tamaulipas frontier, particularly Nuevo Laredo. Nuevo Laredo uh, is it, is that the, the Rio Grande Valley sector of, uh, of the border or is that a little bit further east? Further, further west. West, okay. Yes, I mean the the, the southmost part of Texas is yeah. this. That, I mean, this is kind of this like is okay. this is this is Matamoros and Brownsville. Yep. Then you have McAllen and Reynosa. That's yeah. also a very interesting area. But you have a very long um, and special border where there are not many things in in Mexico. You have mm -hmm. you have uh, you have Matamoros, you have Reynosa, and then you have Nuevo Laredo. Mm -hmm. But in Nuevo Laredo, Nuevo Laredo is a specific, especially because of the connection with big highways mm -hmm. and how it is connected to the main highways of the United States. Uh, I ninety six to I mean it goes to to Texas yeah. and it goes to New York mm -hmm. everywhere right in the U S. It's it's important that that point connects. Uh, That's Reynosa. Uh, Reynosa is one, yeah. but Nuevo Laredo is another one. one. Okay. Reynosa, Matamoros, and Nuevo Laredo. So no, Nuevo Laredo, it's uh, adjacent to what part of Texas? Is it, uh, Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. Laredo, Texas. Laredo, Texas, okay. right. Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas. Mm -hmm. It's a very important city because, as I said, it's the biggest customs of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a military base there. Exactly. I've been there, yeah. Exactly. Okay. And mm -hmm. this is where uh, the, the, the biggest number of cars circulate mm -hmm. every day. Okay. Through Nuevo Laredo. And they have these. Do you have a sense like the, the volume? What's the number? Do you know? I, I don't remember. I, I, we, don't worry about it. It's, um, I mean, it changes every, yeah. every year. But it's the, is you know, the, one of the busiest borders in the world. It's the center of vehicle, vehicular traffic. Yeah. Okay. All along the border and in, in, uh, in Latin America. Mm. Well, I mean, in the region, yeah. the whole region. And so that, that, that place and that uh, plaza was, was, was very it was very important for the so-called drug cartels okay. because of the number of drugs that you could uh, pass through there. Mm. The capacity of uh, this uh, uh, of the customs of border protection uh, to verify the eighteen wheelers is very small. Mm. The percentage is very small, so a lot of drugs. So it was, a, it was a volume. It was a numbers thing. You, you Flood it with more and more and more. You'll get some interdicted, but you a lot will pass through. Exactly, but that was a main plaza. So. Um, Guzman de Sena, who, who, who was uh, at some point was part of the military, Mexican military, had the capacity, the, the training, and there were a number of them that were so-called losetas that were part of the federal police at that time that were doing anti-narcotics operations. Okay. They, met, they, they, they meet and they became the Praetorian Guard of of this, this drug trafficker. But then they were sent to Nuevo Laredo to deal with the problems in Nuevo Laredo. And they found that because of their training, that because of the access to high caliber weapons, they could control all the activities within mm -hmm. the city. So they started to diversify 
the, 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 the their, their capacities. Mm. They started to dedicate uh, themselves to uh, to take money from from all the the illicit businesses, and Or they extortion. started extortion, kidnapping. Uh, they they also started to uh, I mean to uh, I mean to dedicate themselves to human smuggling. Yeah, and but what, but what made them make that shit? Was it because They had a, there was a need and they had a capacity and so they filled the need or was there the economies were shifting in that part or what, it, what? it is it is it is a lot of things. What happened is uh, when NAFTA arrived, mm -hmm. there are more activities, right? And at the same time, if you control a territory, because that was the logic of them, they had high caliber weapons and they had training. And what is uh, I mean your I mean the mentality of of the armed forces, it's like controlling territorial your territory. Control. Yeah, uh, yeah. Territorial control is a basic, yeah. as you know. So the territorial control allow them not just to control the, 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 the drug trade, but there are many other activities that you can control. And they started, it was organically, uh, you know, the, the capacity that they had to provide protection, for example. So there was another source of income from, for okay. them. So also they started to force the lo local law enforcement to work with them when local law enforcement were receiving very low salaries. Yeah. They didn't have training. So it was, it was another thing that they, that they then um, were able to, to dominate the, the whole enforcement and everybody worked for them. They were kind of the leaders of that territory and they extended that model all mm. along that border. So this is, so this is going to jump right into, I don't think it's your first book, but one of your more recent books that I think made a, a big splash, which is Los Zetas Inc., right? It was published in 2017. Um, and this book, uh, would you say, was one of the ones that described this process that we're describing right that, now? That's exactly a okay. book that describes exactly that. Mm. How they, I mean, how organized crime Uh, was modified and how Los Zetas modeled, not just Los Zetas, because Los Zetas changed the face of organized crime, I allege, yeah. in the, not only in Mexico. Colombians will probably say that I am wrong, but yeah. I, I believe that this bringing the militarization to their, to their no, model. No, I think that, I mean, I think that's pretty well understood. I mean, the, the Zetas were military members, highly trained military members, special operations types. And then they brought this know-how to uh, uh, an illicit organization. Like, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit, and then we'll get back to on track on what we're talking about with mm -hmm. Mexico. But you know, my parents are from Bolivia, and so, like, you know, in Bolivia, we have this, um, you know, kind of a bad reputation with uh, cocaine because you know it's one of the producing yeah. countries. Um, and you know, during the Pablo Escobar years of the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel in Colombia you know, they wanted to get a sense of how to use uh, legal mechanisms to be able to do um, judicial evasion on, 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 you know, drug trafficking. And Bolivia had a, a special expertise in that because the, the kind of the, the Pablo Escobar Bolivia, Roberto Suarez, right? He was uh, an economist from the London School of Economics. Mm -hmm. So he uh, essentially understood a kind of, you know, I guess the word cartel comes from this because it's from, from the UK, right? The, I think it's cartel means, um, Like a franchise or something, and and I might be butchering that, but, but I, I know the term. He took it from his time in London, and what he just, according to this um, this narrative, that when Pablo Escobar met with Roberto Suarez, Roberto Suarez says you need to uh, cartelize your your franchise, right? You have to be able to structure it in a way that has compartmentalization, but also has easy access and distribution. 
Um, so he basically organized it like a business. And so that transformed the Colombian cartels to be able to be operate much more business-like. And then I think what you're describing, the, the set does then add the enforcement arm. Exactly, that, you know? exactly. They have always been a business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have all, uh, they, they, we, ca you ca we cannot understand them. We cannot understand illicit networks or illicit businesses uh, by, you know, only focusing on the bad guys. Mm -hmm. They are, they are companies. They yeah. are businesses. Yeah. They are illicit businesses. But exactly. Los Zetas brought a component that had never been present before. This capacity to control territories mm -hmm. allowed the diversification of criminal activities. This is why when I talk about Los Zetas Inc., it's a model. It's mm -hmm. a model of corporations mm -hmm. that is benefiting other corporations because of the of the dynamics it causes and because of the displacement. Um, at, that at the same time, in the year 2006, Felipe Calderón y Jose declared a war on drugs. Yeah. to generate a, what I called, um, you know, a new civil war or a, a modern civil war. When was Los Zetas born? 2000? Los Zetas were born by the end of, uh, it's, it's not, there's no, and it's Eight. not a definite date, but it's at the end of the 1990s, okay. early 21st century. At that, so, that uh, moment. So that's another correlation uh, on what we're describing because we're describing the end of the pre. Exactly. Uh, at that same time frame, uh, exactly. the opening of the democratic system and in, in, in exactly. the extension of, of, of the globalization that's happening in Mexico. Upon uh, Vicente Fox becomes the first non-pre-president in, in, in Mexico in a long time. And the setas started to form in, in yeah. this period. But right? the setas were working for the Gulf cartel. Yeah. I mean, they started to work with the Gulf Cartel in the year 2003, 2004. Okay. Um, this is when, when, uh, when, when, uh, Cárdenas was arrested, but okay. he st they still work with, with the, with the Gulf Cartel, but they were sent to Nuevo Laredo. Still, uh, Ociel Cárdenas, uh, had control from Mexico, but he was extradited to the United States in 2007. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is, this gave them more independence. And so they, from Nuevo Laredo, they started to form the company, their mm. company. So uh, they were called La Compañía, mm -hmm. which is interesting, right? Mm -hmm. How, how some of these groups have called the enterprise, mm -hmm. the ones that were in, in Michoacán mm -hmm. and how, uh, the Compañía, uh, I mean, started to, to be another type of uh, same setas model because the setas went to to Michoacan and the compañía was like, why should we allow these people coming from from Tamaulipas? We are la compañía. We are sorry, la, la empresa. Sorry, it was la empresa in Michoacan. La compañía. It was the, the name that was taken from the, those that were working okay. um, for the. For the Gulf Cartel, the Setas, and and the so Gulf before Cartel. they were called the Setas, they were called La Compañía. La Compañía is the two. It's like now they are kind of partners. Okay, uh, that that's how they call themselves, right? In the beginning, it was just um, the Gulf Cartel. Mm. Los Setas were these enforcers, mm -hmm. but then uh, they work still there. But then uh, the the leader of Silicon lost control when, when he was in the United States, they continue working together, but in a compañía, in mm. partnership, they saw themselves as partners then. And they were then Los Zetas working uh, together, but they became independent. Okay. Okay. And this is why in the year 2000, by the end of 2009, things started to become uh, risky. They wanted to independent, I mean, become 
completely independent and they started they start in 2010 they started a war yeah yeah and, really, and, and you're talking about this with Calderon right with Calderon comes in in 2006 is that right 2006 at the end of 2006 correct and, and, he, he, and he, he declares a war on the cartels um so describe that describe that where's the golf cartel fit because he really was a war against the golf cartel uh, and the setas right you know or specifically was supposedly it? he declared a war on organized crime he declared a war on drugs he declared yeah. a war uh, a narco war but did he declare a war on Sinaloa he declared the war supposedly on everyone. Yeah. The, the, the thing, and this is how the ones who were close to Calderon see it, that they didn't see the Sinaloa cartel. This is, this is the story. Yeah, from uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, this is the story. But as we know, uh, Genaro Garcia Luna, yeah. according to the trial, was receiving bribes from yeah. the Sinaloa cartel. But supposedly, and they, I mean, this is, this is a time where there were a lot of um, narco wars, and the Beltran Leiva brothers separated yeah. from the Sinaloa cartel. And you had other cartels. You had the Tijuana cartel that was at that point a little bit uh, weakened because of what had happened in the years 2003, 2007 in, in Tijuana. So you had a number of groups, as I said, that were part of a division that was created uh, because of the end of the PRI region. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that uh, with this very violent so-called war for, uh, first for Tamaulipas and war for the eastern, I mean, from the Gulf Coast and northeastern part of Mexico. This is when the Gulf Cartel and Los Zetas started a very violent conflict mm. in the year 2010 because a Zeta member was was killed by, in Reynosa by uh, the Concord Tres was killed by the Metro Tres. That's kind of like the story. And that is mm. all described in the book, mm-hmm. Los Zetas Inc., so they started a fight, uh, a very, very violent fight. And supposedly because of also uh, the capacities that they have, the strategies, the extortion, the kidnapping, the beheadings, the brutality they exercise against the population. So during the time of the, of the war on drugs, the Mexican government, dedicated their efforts at that part of the country because of the brutality. That's how yeah. Calderon justifies and and his, uh, the person of intelligence, uh, Guillermo Valdez, mm-hmm. uh, justifies himself. I have seen, uh, and I have, uh, I, I have uh, been present in, in, in a number of presentations. So supposedly they were going against everyone, but they had priorities mm. and their priority was, and I'm not justifying anything. I know that there has been a trial mm-hmm. against uh, Genaro Garcia Luna and Genaro Garcia Luna was declared guilty for receiving bribes from the same guys he was supposed to be fighting. Yeah. It was not again a war against them, but it seemed to be a war against them because the, the most horrible moments, the most brutal moments and the confrontations, the biggest confrontations between the Mexican armed forces and the federal police, because the federal police and the armed forces were um, fighting a conflict. I mean, they were fighting and they were involved in activities that were not the ones that they were uh, prepared for, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was a, you know, was a time where uh, there was a lot of brutality and the brutality was centered in the northeastern part of Mexico. Well, let's Coast. talk a little bit about Genaro Garcia Luna, because you, you wrote a book, another book, uh, among the many books you've written, a more recent book that was published in 2021 called in Spanish called Los Cinco Vidas de Genaro Garcia Luna, The Five Lives of Genaro Garcia Luna. You co-authored it with uh, uh, Tony Payan, your co-author. Uh, so you spoke to him, uh, interviewed him, yes. is that right? Okay. Yes, we were writing a book that it's titled, that 
appeared uh, some months after this book. Um, it was, it's titled The Improvised War, okay. The Years of Calderon and Its Consequences, also mm -hmm. in Spanish. And for that book, we started to interview in the year 2013-2014 a number of people that were connected to the Calderon years. Okay. Those that were very very close to Calderon. I mean, Calderon had written his book. Yeah. We, we, we didn't have to give her him voice. He has already yeah, he had yeah. already you know talked. But people that were very close to him, like mm -hmm. his chief of intelligence mm -hmm. Guillermo Valdez, mm -hmm. Genaro García Luna. Uh, a number of people that designed and implemented the so-called drug war, the security strategy in Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, some people call it the drug war. That's how he presented yeah. himself. He's declaring a war on, cart on cartels. But then we talked to many of them. And in one opportunity in Houston, we had and we had a chance to, to, to talk to Genaro García Luna to spend three days with him. Okay. So when he was arrested, we had that interview and our observations and we also talked to different people B that before he was arrested before he was arrested mm -hmm. and yes he 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 gave a talk in the then it was called the mexico center now it's called the u.s the center for united states and mexico okay. uh right university right university the baker mm -hmm. institute that's mm -hmm. right he was invited to give a talk and he spent with us three days and he gave us his his Yes, I mean, he, we discuss about different things, yeah. and and for the book, he was one of the characters, and he was the main character because everybody um, that described him as the guy who was closer to Calderon, the mm. one who received more money, the one who received the attention, and everybody was. And what did he say? Us. He talked a lot about the strategy itself. Uh, he talked to us about Los Etas, about his his trajectory, his career, his uh, perspectives on on the different uh, actors, political actors, journalists, uh, advocates. We also interviewed activists, advocates. He was talking bad about everyone, but mm -hmm. he really talked uh, very highly of his United States friends, yeah, yeah. <laughs> U.S. government officials, mm. and it seemed that he had a very good relationship. With yeah, a he, was, of them. he was. Yeah. I remember he used to come. I don't know him, but I remember he used to come to Washington. Very well respected. Well. Uh, well decorated as well. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's very interesting, right? Yeah. Um, well, we had the incident with the defense minister as well. Remember, the defense minister was also was very also well decorated, well well respected in the U.S., and then also got arrested in yes. Los Angeles. But I don't think I think he got uh, returned to Mexico. Or yes, no, so. he returned. He 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 returned to Mexico, and supposedly the investigation was going to be done in Mexico. The attorney general's office found nothing, mm. and finally he found nothing or <laughs> didn't look very hard. I I don't think they look very hard and the file is all like yeah, redacted. Sealed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all redacted. So you cannot see it really what the the information. But, but, so what you're describing now is you're describing, okay, so the, you have a war on drugs. It's you know simplistic way to put it, but it's essentially how they you know, put the banner sticker on it. It uh, effectively did capture, and would you say it dismantled the set this, uh, to some level? Uh, okay. um, yep. Wait, this is very important. Yes, the the efforts were centered in the northeastern part of Mexico and the Gulf Coast, yeah. which is the Zeta zones, yeah. the, 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 Zetas, the Zeta areas. But the Zetas were a, a, a particularly interesting group. Some people 
compare their model to a franchise. I don't think it's necessarily a franchise. Mm-hmm. I studied them as criminal corporations with different, like like a big corporation that dedicates to different businesses in different places. And, yeah. and they were connected to some extent, but it's a big corporation. I compare that to Exxon, to a, to a big corporation. But some people have compared them to a franchise. And they kind of like they had a a special special model and the brutality was part of it and then the brutality of the armed forces arrived and these groups and they started to arrest Mm. the kingpin strategy Mm -hmm. uh fenaro garcia luna Mm -hmm. was very well connected with the dea Mm -hmm. so the kingpin strategy was implemented at, at at the at the best that you could have uh implemented them so they started to arrest a number of drug lords and that started to cause a fragmentation of these two organizations in particular that had uh, military personnel or at least had the logic that military personnel brought the two organizations, to, the, to, the, to this organization, yeah. two organizations. The, the organizations, Setas and, and Gulf Cartel. Gulf Cartel. Because okay. it, in, in the end, they, they had the same practices. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the same thing with La Familia Michoacana, yeah. the Seta model. My, my book is not about Los Setas. Yeah. It explains how they were formed, but it's a model. model yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an economic, it's an economic model. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's it's a way to, um, I mean, to extract rents yes. from different businesses. So they become decentralized. Yeah, yeah. They, they became decentralized. They became fragmented. They became, and they adapted. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the other day, which we're is harder, talking- Which is a, re- a response to the kingpin strategy. strategy. Because, you know, if you don't have a king of the snake, you don't have the head of the snake, then you, what do you go after? And there's no kingpin, right? There's just- bunch of local complex yeah. adaptive systems yeah, yes. and because they are systems uh, in the beginning you could see the companies you could see the the, the leadership mm-hmm. but then this leadership is lost and then uh, and you know that uh, you know you know military strategy yeah. you know how how it becomes very difficult to manage but exactly the logic of Calderon and we talked about a number of people that understood very well that implemented that thought about mm-hmm. it the thinking was okay we're going to turn this national security problem into a public safety problem. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have small guys and we're going to fight them with the police. Yeah. Nothing like that happened. It is all a failed war, a failed strategy because nev- this never happened. We don't have even police now anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the federal level. We don't yeah, have and federal we, police. We've we seen that happen, you know, from the military side because, you know, it's I had a conversation once with General Petraeus and he, uh, you know, people forget he was also the director of the CIA. Mm-hmm. And when he was the director of the CIA, he, he he spent a lot of time in Mexico, actually. And he spoke with President Calderon. He, he cannot give a privy to one of those conversations. And he said that, you know, he had been coming from the Middle East, becoming Afghanistan and Iraq in particular. And, you know, we had a lot of experience back then uh, with uh, counterinsurgency and going after uh, terrorists and insurgent groups that were basically controlling territory inside Iraq and Afghanistan that uh, the United States was trying to wrestle control from them. And so he used that model to uh, kind of overlay into Mexico and to say, let's look at the cartels from an insurgent perspective, not necessarily from just uh, um, an, an, an illicit a- activities. And he described uh, the the structure and the territorial control of the cartels as I think, I think, and I might get this number a little bit off, but it's, he said it was about 20 times as big as the Iraqi insurgency, you know, in, in Mexico. And when he had that conversation with President Calderon, he said, he freaked, you know, President Calderon got a little freaked out. He said, okay, but you're going to fight this with uh, less than a tenth of the budget that we were using in the Iraq war. Um, and so, you know, with the, it, it's, yeah, so it's interesting because what you're describing to me is the same thing that we saw in the Middle East 
Whereas, you know, you had, you know, Al-Qaeda, right? Al-Qaeda was right. a franchise at some level, right? But then what you had was these little mini uh, uh, Sunni Salafist uh, jihadist groups that pretty much only they do concerned with was controlling one neighborhood, one territory. Exactly. And uh, that allowed them to have leverage right. uh, with negotiations with, you know, with Osama bin Laden or whoever's, rep- Zargawi, whoever's representing them, uh, Al-Qaeda, the franchise at the time. But it also allowed them to stay kind of beneath the radar, uh, so so that you know the big you know the you know the Pentagon, Central Command, all the big military people, they don't really look at you as like a big fish because you're not a big fish, but you're actually a very. It depends which territory you're in. You could be in a very critical area exactly. of the supply chain, and so that's exactly. basically what I hear you describing. Yes, yeah. and 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 there was a, a reconfiguration of organized crime, yeah. and you are not talking about a cartel. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think that the word cartel, that the, the, the concept is wrong. Yeah, well, it's old. Yeah. It's old, yeah. exactly. It's old, exactly. Because you were talking about Pablo Bolivia, Escobar. Yeah. And, uh, yes, uh, Bolivia, Pablo Escobar, yeah. and, 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 and Colombia. But now, you know, the way that media represents these groups is like there's a cartel, there's a corporation, there's a company. But that's not true. Yeah. We are talking about systems and the, the complex adaptive system. They became yeah. like like these this small cells mm-hmm. that adapt yeah, and to, autonomous. Yeah. yeah, autonomous. And not all of them are trafficking drugs. Some of them are just kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Some of them are participating in human smuggling. And they manage the, because of the capacity, they have arms, they, they control the territory. So if you, if you want to bring, I mean, with smugglers, with human smugglers, you want to bring your people through here. You have to pay me per person this 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 money and yeah. i will give you a code that's exactly what they do mm. some of these some of these uh, groups that they're complex up the systems and so you see how they now behave in um, in tamaulipas in zacatecas in um, and they were set the zones they mm. have always been set the zones in veracruz in tabasco i mean all these groups are dominating uh, illicit activities and they are part of illicit networks. So we cannot think of cartels. First of all, a cartel, what is a cartel? Like the OPEC, right? Yeah. So you, you, don't, you are not talking about all these actors sitting down and saying, hey, let's see how many drugs we're yeah, going to yeah. be. They, they fight against themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's counterintuitive even, like thinking of these groups as cartels. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And we are talking about systems complex adaptive systems. And this is why supposedly now the Mexican government is changing its, its strategy towards the cartels mm. and are not confront and it's not confronting the cartels. We still see a number of murders. Yeah. Why? Because we are talking about complex adaptive systems and you cannot finish. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to yeah, deal yeah. with those. Well, we have this, um, you know, we, we, we're studying complex adaptive systems in terms of, uh, criminalized states, right? So uh, governments that then get embedded into the organized crime business. And what you find there is this uh, this element of um, actors that we call adaptive agents, right? So the adaptive agents are those individuals that are both in the formal, licit enterprise. They're either businessmen, exactly. NGOs, civil society actors, sometimes political actors, but they also dabble into the illicit enterprise but their main purpose is to legitimize the illicit, right? So, uh-huh. And so we call them adaptive agents. And those, you know, what you would look at before, and this is like, you know, kind of goes flies against the, the kingpin strategy because in the kingpin strategy, they wouldn't be that important because they're low on the bottom pole. They're not making big decisions. They're 
But in the uh, system strategy, they're like the most important the because most important. they're the ones that are making this normal. The they're notes. The, they're the nodes. They're the critical nodes right. because they're making that activity normal. They're making that activity prevalent. They're, they're spreading it into other businesses and territories and industries. So uh, I 100% see where you're coming from. Let me let me ask you this. Does Sinaloa also become through this process? Does Sinaloa also atomize into systems or does it maintain some of that command and control? It is a very good question. And I'm writing about this yeah. right now because I am, I'm writing a second edition of, of, of Los Zetas. Yes. Yeah. And it's going to take it some Sinalo, time. Sinaloa Inc.? No, no. Uh, it's called Los Zetas Inc. Nueva Generacion. This is oh, okay. Nueva so Generacion the, comes. Yeah. 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 yeah it, it, I mean, what happened in the Pacific, it's a transformation. And you know, that Los Matacetas yeah. started from a, in an arm, an ar, I mean, an arm of, of a cartel de Sinaloa, the cartel mm. del milenio. They were starting to go after Los Zetas, supposedly, and there is a, you know, it's, it's, there's big reporting about that from the LA Times. Um, uh, um, this journalist, her name, I, I don't remember the name, but the last name is Wilkinson. Mm. So she, she described what happened in Veracruz with Los Matacetas and how they were supposedly, or there's some kind of uh, criminal paramilitarism and, a, and the utilization by the Mexican, the Mexican Navy and the government of Veracruz of members of the Cartel del Milenio. That was kind of the origin okay. of Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. Okay. Nueva Generación and Milenio Cartel was connected with the Sinaloa Cartel. So basically okay. they, they were formed within the Sinaloa Cartel. So that, cartel that, okay, so you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a form of decentralization to some level, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But then you don't explain how, like, some so Matacetas... So Jalisco, Jalisco, Jalisco takes a little bit from Sinaloa and a little bit from Setas, is that right? The model of Los Zetas, yeah. and, and they, but they, they were part of the, of the anti-Zetas, the Matacetas. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, so the logic became different, mm -hmm. and, and they started to become connected through these uh, active agents that you're mm -hmm. talking about, yeah, yeah. Um, that that adapt also. And so the, the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación started like that. Mm. And everybody's like, oh, El Mencho, what is, where is the Mencho? El Mencho, El Mencho had like, like uh, dialysis and, and he had, I mean, and he was uh, created himself supposedly a, a hospital. Do you think that he can manage a big <laughs> criminal corporation? It's not a corporation. Yeah. Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación is exactly a, a network, a criminal network, yeah. or even franchises that yeah. are not connected to each other. Why not? Because everybody can be Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. And yeah. that's why you see Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación yeah. everywhere. That's, that's what I'm going to describe. Yeah. Exactly. And the Sinaloa Cartel, that's another thing. We now do not have the big leader, right? El Chapo Guzmán. So we have Chapitos. And we have Chapitos participating in different uh, cities in Jalisco and fighting against Jalisco Nueva Generación. But the logic is old. I mean, we are talking about systems and uh, Sinaloa Cartel or the part of the Sinaloa Cartel, the command and control part is probably the part that that has a leverage over one activity and it's yeah. drug trafficking or and and this is important, for example, in the in the um, the state of, of Sonora, they also have a very big business on human smuggling. So there are activities that they have been historically involved in, yeah. and there is command and control. But it's 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 also getting the the logic, or, or I mean, following the logic of Los Etas. We don't have in Chapo Guzman right now, as it was in the times of El Chapo Guzman. Yeah, yep. we have the, the the Chapitos, we have El Mayo Zambada, we have other groups that work with them in different parts of the country, the enforcers. 
So we're talking about, again, a system or a network. You can see it as, as, as you can, yeah. right? A system, the active agents, active agents? Adaptive. Adaptive agents, mm -hmm. the adaptive agents or the nodes in mm -hmm. network analysis, mm -hmm. the keynotes, mm -hmm. right? Um, so so we, we have to start seeing these as, as that and yeah. not as like the command and control part. But it seems to me that at this point, the drug trafficking part of the human smuggling part of the Sinaloa cartel is still, is still pretty, you know, yeah, condensed yeah. and, and. No, and I, I think what you're describing, it helps understand um, the problem at the border because uh, those are different territories, right? They're all, you know, territories that are, that have, Uh, industry um, in you know, textiles and the ones in Juarez, but they also have uh, cocaine, drug trafficking. Uh, they also have now human trafficking, human smuggling, uh, arms trafficking. And what you're describing is a, and I think what we described throughout the whole entire podcast is kind of a reactionary element to different strategies to tackle this one big problem, right? Uh, exactly. and, and, and it's adapted, it's, it, it morphs and it, it, it doesn't go away. And I think, and, and, I think the big question there is, are we approaching this all wrong? You know, uh, all wrong. Are we approaching this all wrong? Because, all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I got the, <laughs> the answer's clear. The answer's clear. We, we are approaching it all wrong. Uh -huh. But is, is that, is, is the approach wrong, not just from the, the way that we describing and analyzing and diagnosing uh, the illicit enterprise that's taking over the border? Or is it even more deeper than that? It, and I'm going to kind of go where we begin, you know, are we not thinking even strategically enough about, you know, what globalization means or what, 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 you know, what incentives align between formal enterprise, free enterprise and illicit enterprise? Like how does that all package in? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very complicated uh, question, but yeah. I would say that if you diagnose something wrongly, if yeah. I say like you, you have a flu yeah. and you have a cancer, You give me a headache pill. Yeah, and, 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 and yeah exactly. And, and something is going to, I mean, your, your body is going to be destroyed yeah, inside, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you're going to die. Uh, this, this, is, this is more complex, right? So I think that diagnosing the problem or, or just talking about cartels. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wrong. Yeah, you, I, I see you're trying to change the language, the lexicon. You know what you want the uh, lexicon to modernize to what the current threat is. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, so- You have, you have criminal groups that specialize because yeah. they don't do everything. Los Zetas started doing everything in Nuevo Laredo. Yeah. And this is the way that I started analyzing them. They diversify, they do everything. They did in the territory they dominated, but then they have adapted and they have, uh, um, I mean, they have fragmented. So you have these groups just dedicating, some of them just to kidnapping and some of these actors, the adaptive agents that are licit and do illicit Uh, things mm -hmm. like the ones that transport drugs, mm -hmm. for example, the truck drivers or the 18-wheeler um, drivers that smuggle people, for example. Mm -hmm. And they are connected with arms groups that allow them through their territory. If we don't describe this correctly, mm -hmm. if we don't, like when you, I mean, in social network analysis, you utilize mm -hmm. military strategy and all these other ways to deal with security issues, uh, also policing, right? So if you know who these adaptive agents are, You can take them and yeah. then you destroy the network. This is the thing that we're not, I think that the main thing is that, 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 the, that there is a tendency and it's political, it's economic too. It has the logics of the bureaucracy. Yeah. You don't want to 
stop the kingpin strategy. The DEA does not want to stop well, the know, kingpin strategy. You, you know how logics. You know how to do it too. Like it's something that you've done. It, you know, they say you teach how you were taught, right? So um, if you were like you, know, you have a, a a generation of Mexican police and military officers that were taught a certain way of how to deal with this problem, it's very difficult to break that tradition because you know you, you that's what you do. You know. In Mexico, there's another problem. Uh, I mean, I, I'm talking about the anti-narcotics operation. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about the DEA, the role of the DEA and the, and the, I mean, and what they have to want to pressure upon, right? They insist in the Kingpin strategy, even with the bicentennial framework approach, which was, I think it was interesting, uh, but in connecting all and understanding the, the different dimensions of the problem. But then the first thing that it's done uh, when, when the, the, the bicentennial framework starts is like, okay, here are the rewards for Los Chapitos. And I'm like, okay, mm, good. Yeah. King strategy at its most. Yeah. So, of course, that's one thing. In the case of Mexico, it's impunity, it's corruption, it's, it's, the, it's the multiplication of the adaptive agents yeah. because of impunity. That's the thing, right? Yeah, so that in, in warfare, so like, you know, there's a saying in the military, it's... Um, Experts talk strategy, but professionals talk logistics. So, you know, when you go to war, um, obviously there's the big brains and all the strategic people that are in, you know, the Pentagon and in other places that are talking about how we're going to approach this war, how we're going to fight this war. But when you actually had to fight the war, it's actually those that can actually move the transportation, get the, what they call the beans, bullets, and band-aids you know, from one A to B to Z. Uh, those are the ones that actually execute this to make it effective and actually work. My point to that is the saying that you know, what we learned through the war on terror, it's also kind of a simplistic term, just kind of like the war on drugs, but it's what we learned through those 20 plus years is that the logistical networks matter because exactly. the logistical networks is what makes everything function. You know, um, we can go after terror leaders. We can go after uh, terror financiers. We can go after uh, a lot of these folks and some of it's very well uh, needed. But unless you dismantle the logistical networks, though, they exactly. just replicate and they and they grow again. So um, what you're describing to me is the logistics. And, and, and I'll, I have to end it here because we want to get you back on Guadalupe because um, we, ha we didn't even get into the, the NGOs and uh, your time on the border. I didn't even want to ask her one question about her time on the border. But it was so interesting, the history, because I think the history sets that up Absolutely. to be able to talk, talk more about that. But, um, you know, there's this uh, thing about, and you know this because of economics, right? Because at the end of the day, well, the reason I studied economics was because it helped me understand human action. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you understand with human action is that we're all driven by incentives, right? Uh, right. Anyone that's got a job knows that the incentives matter. And when the incentives for free enterprise, um, you know, the incentives for production uh, get overtaken by the incentives for predation, uh, then illicit enterprise has a bigger chance of growing than free enterprise. And what you have is the logistics around that starts to move towards more uh, bad activities. You know? exactly. uh, and, and I think that what we're describing in, in this conversation is that globalization had a dark side. Right. It, it, had, it had a dark side that uh, didn't maybe intend to do this, but inadvertently second, third order effect allowed to incentivize a logistical network that started to grow uh, as, you know, these companies were making money and everything like that, but they started to grow and in the, the you know, quote unquote cartels, but the, the, you know, the, the transnational criminal organizations in Mexico figured it out. They figured out the system. They figured out how to work within the seams. Exactly. Uh, and now that's, uh, I think, you know, that's pretty much, I think where we're at because all the criminal organizations that we're looking at throughout the hemisphere, I can't say the world, but 
they all kind of following the, the oh, yeah. uh, adaptive system model. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. you, yeah, yeah, even yeah. to the level of FARC has done this in Colombia. Exactly. Um, there's, you know, the group in the, Aragua, the Bacrin in, in, in Colombia. I just came back from Ecuador and it's, you know, I think it's 14,000 micro cartels in a micro trafico in Ecuador. So, it, it, and I think they all realize that this is a very um, successful way to evade kind of uh, counter narcotics, uh, law enforcement approaches that have been focused on what you're describing, the kingpin approach uh, that, that hasn't got rid of the problem. Absolutely. Is, is that fair to say? Is that how we describe yes, it? Yes, but there, there's a very, it's, it's fair to say, but you talked about globalization. Yeah. I would say this double transition towards free markets yeah. and democracy, also democracy. What would you, know, you say? Democracy, because when the end of the PRI regime yeah. started with all these other dynamics, I'm not saying that democracy is bad in itself in any form, but it's very interesting how this coincides, right? Yeah. How when democracy came to Mexico, the democratization process started yeah. and consolidated with the with the triumph of the of the pan, yeah. the, the, the dynamics changed. This perfect dictatorship that was able to manage the drug trade lost the control of it yeah. because of democratization. Yeah, yeah. So this is very interesting. Too. Well, you know, I, we have had that conversation today a bunch of times, actually. So, and and you know, I actually gave a presentation about that because you know we have this concept of democracies versus authoritarians now, right? That's like the big uh, talking point in Washington. I think you know, in different you know right. parts of the world. And I've always looked at it as a false dichotomy because no, you know, people compare it to the Cold War with capitalism, socialism, but those were very clear defined lines because the Soviet Union defined themselves as a communist socialist uh, regime, uh, United States capitalist. We don't have that with autocracy. Uh, there is no uh, government or regime in the world that considers themselves autocratic. They all consider themselves democratic. They call each other autocratic. They, some of them call the United States autocratic. So it's kind of a false dichotomy and what it turns into is just democracies versus democracies. And what I've described is I say is democracy, if you study democracy, and I think there's a lot of democracy scholars, including probably yourself, but if you study democracy, democracy really didn't, you know, that, that didn't have its day in the, you know, the 20th, 20th century was really, you know, was where representative democracy flourished, but it didn't have its day. And I say the birth of the representative democracy model was until we discovered nation state sovereignty, 1648, right. peace of Westphalia, right? So we fought a 30 year war to be able to get to that. Yeah. But what we described is once a nation state can have its identity, can have its sovereignty, can have its territorial integrity, and then we can actually talk about a democratic model. That is right. And and, and I think what's that at risk right. today is not, and it goes to what we're talking about exactly. with the cartels and stuff, you know, organized crime, what's at risk today isn't democracy per se, you know, the, the practice of democracy, it's, uh, territorial integrity and the state sovereignty. Absolutely. And that's why borders matter. Because borders, borders define Absolutely. that sovereignty. Guadalupe, I would love to talk to you all night. And uh, and we, 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 so here's what we're going to do because my audience, does, uh, they have to get engaged. So we're going to ask all our audience, I'm sure you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Uh, we're going to put the links for all of Guadalupe's books. She has five of them. We talked about, I think, at least two, maybe three. Um, she has some Great. in Spanish some in English. Um, we didn't talk about democracy in the two Mexicos, um, but we'll, we'll hit on that. And the new. And the new one, the Frontera, a journey across. That, with that one we have to say, because that's, that's, that, that doesn't even seem like just an academic book. That almost seems like a, a, a personal account, a journey. It's a journey. It's yeah, a journey. and I, I want to uh -huh. hear about the journey. And that's forthcoming in December 2023. So, uh, but I want you guys to give me at least 700 likes uh, to this video. Uh, so that we can get, well, you know, Guadalupe will not come back for anything less than 700 likes. No. So there you go. There you go. She is a Mayan princess. 
So we're not going to get her back. We're not going to get her back for anything less than 700 <laughs> likes. But we'll put the links to all her books. I think the main one we talked about today was Los Zetas Inc. I think that's in Spanish and English, right? Yes, in Spanish and English. Okay, so yeah. we'll put links to both of them. Are they available on Amazon? Uh, they, yes, exactly. Okay. okay, we'll put the Amazon links in the show description. Uh, anything else you want to plug? You have a book coming out? Any other papers or anything? You want, how, how do people find you, follow you? Um, I have a lot of uh, papers. You're pretty and prolific articles. on Twitter. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> prolific on Twitter. Not not so much. I, I think I'm, I have more 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 articles, but uh, but but the Twitter um, it's 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 my the way that they can find me. G Correa Cabrera. G. Correa Cabrera. Yeah, okay. G. Correa Cabrera, that's mine. Okay, we'll put, her, we'll put her Twitter handle as well. Is, is that the main social it's, media you use? It, it, yes, it's the main social media, but it's not called Twitter anymore. Oh, it's called, yeah. <laughs> I'm slow X. on the kid. Is it called X? X. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not, that's going to take me a while. Yeah, it's going to take everybody <laughs> gonna, a while, but we, we, we adapt. <laughs> we adapt, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell Elon Musk about his adaptive agents. Exactly. I'm sure he's, yeah, okay, so on X, we can find uh, 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 Guadalupe. Guadalupe, I had a great time. I enjoyed, I actually want to read the book. I haven't had a chance to read Losetas yet, Losetas Inc. But based on what you're describing, I'm going to read it. Um, and then uh, we want to have you back for your new book. When, that, that one came out in December? Is that yeah, right? December. Yeah, December. Okay, awesome. Um, well, thank you, Guadalupe. You're welcome. We'll have you back pretty soon. Uh, All right. All right thank, thank you, guys. You. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Subscribe to the Border Wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.